2: Hello and welcome to podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from the Staten Island Ferry on our way to the wall here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybar. I'm Felisco. And with us today is a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, Kemiando it Yes.
3: Kenny, great I'm to have in, you. I'm bringing the black to the white. See what I did there? <laughs>
2: Thank you. Thank <Yeah. laughs> you. <laughs> yeah kemi uh kemi's a writer producer director actor um produced numerous shorts wrote on undressed wrote on step up writes on step up uh started an episode of little america i think you have more credits than uh anyone we've we've done or at least more oh um, more more <laughs> more slashes
3: oh yeah but you know the slashes are a gift and a curse because like yes, people think are. People think you're just like mildly good at each of them.
2: Jack of all trades, master of none, Yeah, stay in my line. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I don't know. Being a
4: multi hyphen, it's pretty it's pretty impressive. I mean
3: You know what it is? You gotta put actress last. Because when people are like actress, writer, director, they're like, Oh, you didn't get any jobs, which is true. But they don't need to
2: know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a,
4: that's a great way yeah, of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, I know you are good so, at all of those yeah, things. Ahead. I don't know if you're good at podcasting, so I guess we'll find out. Oh, so. <laughs>
4: okay. The
3: pressure. Actually, I produce no, I a have, podcast. I have
2: Can I you? have watched I have watched and listened to Issa Vibe. So. Yes. <laughs> so, I am well aware that uh, I, I was not flying blind when I asked you to come on. I knew yeah. what, I knew what I was getting into. Okay? Yeah. It's a vibe um, on your on your Instagram. Yeah. It's but a flirting show. You, get
3: it? Yeah. you know what? I'm trying to sell it. So, whoever wants to buy it, that's where you're going to find it. Okay? It's <laughs> my,
4: this my it. shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is this podcast about?
3: Oh, I'm producing a different podcast, but I have an IGTV show where I get two people to just flirt with each other because I feel like the art of flirting is dying. You know, like I was getting 100%. eggplant emojis in my DM. What the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Can I,
4: cuss? Can I
3: cuss? <laughs> Am I allowed to cuss on this <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Uh, okay. I, I watched the one you you posted this week. It was so <laughs> yes. cute. I mean like oh, yes. it's just so sweet the way it's it's actually really, really sweet and kind of life affirming to watch you all flirt with each other. Um It
3: is. Yeah. And I you know, I didn't expect it. I thought it was gonna be more funny, but it was really I think there's something about the pandemic and people are not connecting with people as much. And giving a space for people to connect and say that's why you're here has started to feel like a little bit more endearing than I thought it would be, you know. Yeah. So
4: it's been
2: fun. Well, it's like I you gotta know, check it, that out.
4: I, I didn't. It, I, I gotta watch that.
2: Yeah, it's not obviously this movie is not in any way romantic, but um <laughs> it's, it's not in any way. anyway, but like every part, po- every show, I'm sorry, it's like a meet cute, and it's really kind of sweet to see people break through barriers and mm. you know catch each other's rhythms, and like I don't know i uh I think it's really cool coming, so I didn't realize right. it- was, I, obviously it's an i g t v show not a podcast, but same kind of vibe, yeah,
3: same kind of vibe,
2: it's a vibe, mhm, it's a vibe. <laughs> So is this this movie's a vibe, guys.
3: You know, it's some sort of vibe.
4: <laughs> it's some sort of vibe. I, I I don't know what really what vibe it is, but it's going for something.
3: Opening shot. I was like, this is wild. Okay, yeah. what the <laughs> fuck is going on?
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think I described was... describe the opening shot. I am not afraid of anything. The yep. opening oh, shot. Ahead. The opening shot follows three young black kids in Central Park as they you know they're just kind of rapping back and forth really apropos of nothing as they hide behind a couple of trees <laughs> where you see a full-on naked central park threesome being guarded by a third two women, two girls and a guy two white girls black guy being guarded by a fourth person another guy with a gun to make sure that anybody who is potentially watching this threesome mm-hmm. uh Runs away when that guy points yeah. his gun at them,
4: which he so, does to the three children that were rapping, yeah, as they, as they yeah. peep on what's happening.
3: And then, right after that, one of the white girls is like, and Let me finish you and I'll finger you. Did you know? Did you catch that?
2: Yep,
4: yep, yep. Right at oh, oh, the end, I caught it. I caught it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and then, and then the next scene is her. We don't usually get to the plot this fast, but the next scene is her going back to her, like, obviously, like $10 million penthouse yep. and her mother is marla maples just so this uppity, uppity. Is, <laughs> yeah, this is, that's in the first five minutes yeah this movie's wild so before <laughs> we get into the movie kemi uh we like to ask people on this podcast where were you in 1999
3: oh 1999 i was in uh i was in what they call primary school i was in swaziland I um, was about to start – y'all going to find out how young I am. I was about to start interviewing for high school. But our system is different. It's like seven years primary school, seven years high school. Um, but I think something that is interesting about 1999 is I was in grade – I think that's actually when I started feeling horny for the first time. If I if I think about it. <laughs> it's
4: a big year. Yeah. It was
3: a big year. I think that's the year I started to be like, Ooh, what's going on over here? <laughs> so I'll I say nineteen ninety nine started my lifelong relationship with horniness.
4: Man, I thought it was a big year, but it was a really big year. I mean, listen. for movies. But I mean, so, <laughs> do you too? remember? That's, that's I mean, also I'm, I'm when I started
2: feeling horny, some and I'm much older. Made you. it out there? <laughs> No. That Why was, did y'all
3: choose 1999?
2: There are so many good movies this year. Like it really just got, it comes down to something very simple. Phil and I hung out a lot. Phil and I yeah. have been friends for 15 years. And our relationship basically consisted of eating breakfasts, brunches, or lunches and talking about movies. And we – oh, yeah, Phil a writer as well. And we always came back to just kind of the, the phenomenon that was like why did all of these incredible movies uh, break through in 99? And then as we've gone further and further down this rabbit hole, like there does seem to be a real interesting cultural shift that happened in, 1990, in t- 1999 um, – could be clinton and could be you know the millennium it could be yeah changing you know changing uh exhibition models and distribution models and and there's a an indie it, there, there, it's kind of that moment when indie was just about to be mainstreamed when the big companies were taking yeah. over so you had these movies like I mean, for instance, being John Malkovich and Magnolia and The Insider and all these movies that would have been made for like ten million or five million, getting made for like fifty million or sixty million. So yeah, there's just something really cool and interesting about the moment for us that uh, that excited us and uh, and yeah, and and, you know, just we we really think it's necessary if you're going to do this not to pick and choose. So you have to do. Yeah. Also, yeah. Also, I mean, as
4: we've discussed, but I mean, it was it. It sort of was all media, which is what Kenny and I have sort of discovered as we've gone deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole. Like, you know, the fact that you have The Sopranos and The West Wing premiering both in 1999, you're really sort of seeing this this moment when, you know, cable becomes real and broadcast becomes outdated and that in conflict with the studio system versus the indie system, like it's all kind of, for whatever reason, all sort of crescendoing at this, at this moment. So it was really exciting to explore.
2: And musically it's also like, it's also like kind yes. of the last moment that like things were yes. really siloed. Yep. Yeah. Um, like we we did a Britney Spears episode and we're about to do rage against the machine episode. So like, <laughs> oh. it's like things are, things were very like, like, like if you look at the charts, you never would have what you have today, like uh, these crossover artists yeah. doing different styles with you know with with different kind of artists or the same five producers producing like everything from you know mm-hmm. rock bands to rap music to dance music. So uh, it is a la- kind of a last gasp for the the siloed off music. Yeah, it it, it feels kind of- like yeah to your
4: point it, it really does feel like genre doesn't so much exist after this point in the same way that it did before at
2: least not in the mainstream
4: yeah 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 and 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 I and not not to to have a, a a hacky transition but that kind of speaks to this movie <laughs> like this movie if if I putting sort of what it's trying to say as effectively or ineffectively as it might very well be doing in this film just to look at the way the film is made like that was the thing that i found perhaps the most i don't want to say disappointing because that's the wrong word but the the that was the thing that hit me the most which was to pull off something like this a mosaic of all of these different stories a good chunk of them being improvised and have any sense of cohesion is incredibly difficult like this is a very high bar that he's striving for and i appreciate the swings and i appreciate what he attempted to do i don't know how successfully he did it in my opinion but it's it really like i kept thinking about magnolia and that's the wrong movie to think about from a from a really in any way shape or form but just because of how big the cast was how sprawling it sort of was in its own way the the sort of collapsed time period of it because it feels like the whole thing takes place over a matter of days maybe like it it feels like it really takes place yeah like a week like that so it's it really is just sort of this this really condensed crazy movie that's very kitchen sinky in terms of like trying to put everything he's ever thought about race and america and youth and all of it and yeah i mean I, i i'm still not entirely convinced that I know how I feel about it, if I'm being completely honest.
3: You know what I did appreciate about in terms of like how it, like the look of it, it looked like a nineties music video. Like if you look at it through the lens of like, this is what nineties music are, especially R&B music videos. It felt like one long nineties music video, mm-hmm. which I yeah. thought was like, and I feel this way about empire. Empire feels like one long music video that lasted seven seasons. I don't know what season they're in. (laughs) But I think when you start looking at it in that way, because at first I was kind of like, oh, Um, you know, because music videos have the tropes, right? And so I kind of appreciated that. I think the most meta thing for me was like his commentary on race, was pretty spot on, to be honest, and can still live on today. But as a white man writing Mm -hmm. and directing, (laughs) it's just like, you're doing the thing. You're doing the thing you're commenting on. (laughs) And so that's what I was just like, this is wild. This is wild. Like, you literally are doing the thing you're commenting on. Wild.
4: Do you think (laughs) that he was aware of that?
3: And this is what I often wonder about people who do this because there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. I I don't. I You're think talking they, to one. <laughs> 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 I often think that they 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 see themselves. You know, like I think they they sort of see themselves as like the Eminem of of,
1: mm-hmm. of,
3: yeah. of movie making. And so I think they're like, I have this insider info so I can do it. And I can make this, I call them woke whites, okay? That's what I call them, woke whites. But it was just so fascinating because I do think a lot of the points you brought up, especially with the girl and, like, to me, the movie's main message is people love black culture but not black people, you know? And... I was just like finding it fascinating that a white man wrote and directed this and yet was rightfully speaking on all the things, but simultaneously doing the thing.
2: (laughs) We've spoken about that, you and I, Kemi, that
5: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: notion, right? And, you know, I've had to kind of check myself and humble myself in terms of what, uh, why I feel like I can write the stories I can write. So I think I have just a little insight into what's going on. And I think a lot of it came through to me. And again, there we can touch on how horrible James Toback is, and how horrible Which Brett Ratner do. is. And uh, but there's something about the when when Brett Ratner is directing Raekwon's video, mm-hmm. and he's sitting in Vi- Video Village, and they have the shot of him in Vi- Video Village, and he's dancing like this, right? <laughs> yeah. And he thinks he's like he's allowed to dance like that, right? Like he's like I get this music. Um, I get Brett Ratner is a, again, no judgment, super rich kid from Miami. He even says that basically in the movie, you know, but he thinks that he, he is, he thinks he's been given a pass and that's a notion that like was pretty prevalent until like about 18 months ago. Right. The idea that there are a lot of white people who think they have been given a pass that decided themselves they were given the pass does that make sense? <laughs> it does <laughs> like i i and again i you know i hesitated to walk too far into this water you know because i i risk being one of these people myself but like i watch a lot of espn and there's a basketball player named uh, alex caruso a white guy in the lakers and he was talking to kendrick perkins who's like this you know somewhat famous retired player he played with lebron and he's like He's, on, he's a commentator on ESPN. He's very smart. And they, he was interviewing Alex Caruso. And Alex Caruso was saying all the right things about race, you know, in this current moment. And Kendrick Perkins said at the end of it, he goes, look, we're not giving out any invites to the cookout right now. But if we are, you'll be the first one to get it. And I think that's the way that – that that's that's. I think white people thought they were always welcome at the cookout if they felt like it. <laughs> yeah. And that goes further, right? That goes further into like – the way white people have not just appropriated the culture, the way white people have come in and just said, "Yeah, we love this shit. We'll take it now."
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can
4: you see it in in obviously the it's most apparent at least within the story of the of the movie with the kids with the Bijou Phillips and uh, I mean specifically yeah, her character and just this idea of like I just I want to be black, so I should be allowed to be black.
3: But not just that. Like she even says, like, I'm a kid. This is just a phase. I'ma do it. And then when I don't wanna do it, I don't have to do it. Right. But yeah. we're kids. And again, fascinating because that's so true. It's like, yeah, you do get to put on this like I'm ghetto and speak like this. But then when the cops come, you can you can take it off, <laughs> you know? You can take it off real fast, like a like a real costume. And I I appreciated that awareness that she kept speaking of, you know, I don't think she realized what she's saying, but I do think it's very interesting to see how white culture will love black people until it's dangerous to them. And also the awareness that they can take it on and take it off, you know,
2: it's the same shit that's happening
3: on TikTok.
2: Yeah, all all over the place. But that's that's what happens at the end of the movie? So not to jump ahead, but that's kind of what we yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the movie, you literally have a white person <clears throat> committing a crime against a black person for a black person. Yeah. uh Who is, a, who is, who is in such a privileged position that he can commit murder and get away with it. Yeah. So it's this, I'm of two very, very polarized minds about this movie because, he he seems to be James Tolback in this movie seems to be very aware of the of what white people are doing right and the ways white people are fucking up but i don't think he gives the black people in this movie any agency and i think there's something really kind of deeply insidious about the way some of the black people are um portrayed 100%. particularly rich like there's yeah. something really really kind of and I'll just jump to it. Like there's this idea, and Kimmy, I feel like this is more your real house. You've been talking about this all season. So I'm cribbing a lot of like your notes. But <laughs> there's this idea that like, you know for decades and decades, white people have been making movies and television shows about black people, yes, but they've always put them in uh subordinate positions, you know, whether it's slavery, whether it's, you know, uh uh home help like like the help i mean whether it's you know criminals things like that and i think that there's something insidious about this idea of the character i believe his name was will right the um the older brother who wound up killing will wants to quote unquote be black but he is not quote unquote black until he commits a crime commits a murder and then, as soon as he like, that's what being black is. Like, you want to be black? That's how you be black. And that even the white insidious. kids
4: think he's the most black white guy. They like, say, they that. talk about him in that way. Yeah,
3: yeah. and it, I I noticed that within like twenty minutes though. Like the idea of blackness is like, oh, I smoke weed, I do drugs. Oh, I I speak with abonics, and even their understanding of abonics is not really abonics. It's just like. Broken grammar, and so <clears throat> I I think I noticed that, and it bothered me. But it's also how people think, right? And so I did feel conflicted in that. But what to your point, he manages to put an array of white people in that movie, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And even as that line where the black guy's like, you can't lump all white people together, right? When he's talking (laughs) about his girlfriend, he's like, she's different. And I feel like there was a variety of white people. You had the white uppity uppity, you had all these people, but I feel Mm -hmm. like all the black people were the same. And I don't know that he, like, I think there was a chance to make at least one of those characters or two of those characters go against the stereotype of black people because I do think actually you have more freedom to roll with a stereotype when there's an array of people, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense.
2: So there, I thought about that too. And just like doing a quick audit, there was the, uh, vanity fair writer, one scene character who was going to write the profile on Joe Pantrione. Yeah. And then there was, um, I don't know who she was like rich's ex-girlfriend or rich's something yeah. girlfriend, other. Girlfriend. like yeah, Rich's consci- as, yeah. conscience who comes every yeah. once in a while and says, you know, don't be a bad boy. But yeah. outside of those two characters, yeah, they all kind of fit into these stereotypical boxes. We, we've put into, we put uh, black people into, but the thing that's come clear to me, and it's interesting to do this movie at this moment in history, because like, again, from a white person's perspective, what's happening right now seems to be black people have been saying the same things for a very long time and white people are just finally listening. Um, Like nothing is really, to me, really changing about the way black people are presenting their ideas. It's just that, you know, someone got murdered on camera for nine minutes and, and a lot of people woke up. So I think, Maybe five years ago or maybe 20 years ago, I might have watched this movie and I might have said, so these white kids in, you know, and I was this exact age. These, these these white kids in New York, I was in New York at this time, had a lot of friends who were white kids in private schools who wouldn't have been so open about their desires to be black. Like that was a little over the top, but that's not really so important. Like there's so much appropriation going on. It was crazy. So – you you would have put a put out a film like this and a white audience might have said all right that's that's kind of weird and that's kind of like you know not what we want our kids to be doing but what do we do about it what do yeah. we do about these you know cuz like when she says it's just a phase like yeah well it's it's okay it is like maybe just a phase for her but it seems very clear to me what you do about it is you stop treating black people and black culture like it is a fucking outfit to put on like it's wearing, you know, like it's wearing a costume and that showed that these are actual, it's so, it's embarrassing because it's so simple, but these are actually people with an actual culture that you don't get to just put on and put off. Um, but, and if you do want to like be a tourist in black culture, do your research, earn your way in. So,
3: I mean, I just think it's like, also if we go real, real big with it, if you look at America, one of the biggest biggest uh, exports is black culture, right? It's the music, it's the film, it's it's the style. Like that is a big export. And America wears it like a costume because like I said, people love black culture. Like a lot of people be like, I love black culture. Yeah, you do, but you don't love black people because where were those people? If you look at all those white kids at the end, where were they, you know? and And I think especially... The girlfriend, um, yeah, her just like, oh yeah, he got killed, or, 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 or even though she was part of it. To me, that represents. I love black culture. I want to be with the baller, but I don't actually give a fuck about the person, you know. And Is it's the, the more, Claudia
4: Schiffer character that we're talking about. Sorry, I just want. Yes, yeah, don't that. ask yeah. me yeah.
3: actor's names. Don't don't call me out. Don't call me out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, I, Kevin, you're in a position to speak to that a little bit uh, more than almost any guest we've ever had. As a kid, you grew up primarily in Uganda, but also Swaziland? No.
3: In 1999, I was in Swaziland. So at three weeks old, I, was, I went to uh, Swaziland. I was supposed <laughs> to go to South Africa. My dad is really light-skinned and can pass for white. Um, so they told him he wouldn't be able to live with his, I about black and white. They told him, you won't be able to live with your kids and your wife. So he had a job, everything. And then they were like, "Uh, that's your wife and kids. You won't be able to live in the same. So it's just at the end of apartheid that we moved. So um, then he was like, fuck that. So we moved to Swaziland. And that's why I ended up there.
2: And you were there through – I actually don't know this, but I – You were there through how how old? So
3: I was there till 13. Well, my family was there till 13. They moved back to Uganda when I was 13, but I was still in boarding school uh, Mm -hmm. in Swaziland. So I would go back and forth. So I'd be at school and then every three months I'd go back home for a month for holidays and so forth.
2: So in terms of the American media you got as a child, what was the American media you were getting? um, Film, television, music, whatever.
3: That's very interesting because I think, you know, I've been having a lot of discussions about people. There is a little bit of a divide between Africans and African-Americans that's being talked about, especially diaspora. And what I always tell people is, as Africans, we consume the same media that y'all consume, right? We're consuming the mass media that America is putting out. So we're watching films like this and being like, oh, thug, 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 thug we too are also like, I love black culture. Don't want to be arrested, you know? And so what happens is when people come here, they, and they have their kids, they try to make a divide with their kids. And so they'll be like, no, 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 you're not black. You're African. Like you're, you're special. You're different. And so I think that's where that divide starts on the immigrant side. Um, I think the same thing that happens on the other side in that, Americans consume the same media. So when you're seeing Africans are poor, Africans are backwards, Africans are this, they're also receiving that. So then they tell their kids, oh, you're not African, you're African American. And so that divide starts. And so basically we consume media like a white person back home. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, there is a lot of ignorance about the African American History, like why wasn't I taught African-American history? Because it is an extension of my history, you know, to see it as different. Those are our people, you know. And so we basically consume it like white people. We love Black culture, could care less about Black people. And that's a huge generalization, of course. But I do think that because we are just consuming what is given out, I think now less so with social media, because... Everyone with Twitter and, and Instagram I think people are, you know, consuming from the horse's mouth. But in nineteen ninety nine, we were watching all the films that y'all were watching, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. And then you came here in co- you came here for college when you were eighteen or for acting 18. school when you were eighteen. And no. I was in Georgia, Oregon, or
3: Yeah, I was in Portland, Oregon. I was an overnight mm-hmm. minority. Could not be at a whiter place. Wow. Yeah. What a time. It's like, like I flew from Uganda and landed in Portland. Wow. Wow.
5: Wow.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then I went to San Francisco, then LA, Mm -hmm. then back home, then came back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I remember being obsessed with black movies. Like in the 2000s, I remember being obsessed and like, just wanting that life you know mm-hmm. i remember like i watched love and basketball 150 times you it's know so
4: good it's such a great movie yeah, yeah
3: yeah but then you come here and you're like oh you land in portland
4: <laughs> <laughs> that is not love and basketball let me tell you that is wow Um, I'm going to just let me give a a very brief synopsis of the movie just for the people that haven't seen it. Uh, Rich Bauer, played by Oliver Power Grant, is up and come is an up and coming star in the hip hop world. Everyone wants to be around him, including Charlie, played by Bijou Phillips and her fellow fellow upper class white high school friends, played by Elijah Wood and Gabby Hoffman. The growing appeal of black culture among white teens fascinates documentary filmmaker Sam, uh, played by Brooke Shields. Who, steps, uh, sorry, who sets out to chronicle it with her husband, Terry, played by Robert Downey Jr. But before Bauer is a rapper, he was a gangster, and his criminal past comes back to haunt him in, and all of those around him. Uh, it was written and directed by James Toback. Uh, it first screened at the Telluride Film Festival on September 4th, ninety nine, and would eventually get theatrical release in April of 2000. It would go on to make $5 million on a $15 million budget. The movie has 39% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 30% from audiences. Um, I want to read a very brief uh, snippet of Roger Ebert's two-star review of the movie where he said, Like James Toback himself, his new film is in your face, overflowing with ideas, outrageous in its connections, maddening, illogical, and fascinating. But also like its author, it's never boring. Tobak is the brilliant wild child of indie cinema, now a wild man in his 50s, whose films sometimes seem half-baked, but you like them that way. The agony of invention is there on the screen. The characters in his movies slide easily in and out of various roles with sex as the lubricant. Toback's camera follows one character into a situation and another out of it, gradually building a mosaic. Black and white is not smooth and well-oiled, not fish, not foul, not documentary, not quite fiction, and not about any single theme you can pin down. Those are points all to its credit.
2: Yet two stars.
4: Two stars. Um, I think that just for context, the James Toback situation in terms of his career and, and some... Things that he's done kind of came to a head in the Me Too uh, situation in 2017. On October 22nd, 2017, the Los Angeles Times reported that 38 women have accused Toback of sexual harassment or assault. Toback denied these allegations, saying he had not met the women, or if he had, it was for five minutes, about which he had no recollection.
2: A lot of famous women on that
4: list, too. Yes. Rachel McAdams, Selma Blair, Julianne Moore, to name a couple. Uh, The alleged harassment occurred at meetings framed as interviews or casting auditions in places such as hotel rooms, movie trailers or a public park where Toback asked questions pertaining to the women's sex lives and rubbed his crotch or masturbated in front of them. Um, He claimed that he was taking medication at the time. So these uh, assaults were, quote unquote, biologically impossible. Since the article was published, 357 additional women contacted the Los Angeles Times and said Toback has sexually harassed them.
3: Wow, I was about to say before you mentioned that is much like the way he treats black characters. The female characters are just like product on both sides, right? It's just like the white girls are just there to like. I had no idea. I had no idea why they were there, why they were at the party, but it was just like, here, white girls. Yeah. And same with that scene where you see him with the two Black girls. And so it just, they felt like currency in many ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like he could have, if you really wanted to explore race dynamic, he could have explored that phenomenon of Black men with white women, which I think is fascinating. Um, and but it just felt like none of the women he I'm not shocked is what I'm
5: saying. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: no, know, yeah. it's funny because I, I talk about dialectics a lot. The idea that two things could be true. The, at the same time, two seemingly opposing ideas could be true at the same time. One, two things come to mind for James Toback. One mm-hmm. is the, you know, the, the, the classic, can you separate the art from the artist? And I've really come down on the side of you almost have to, or else you're going to be searching out people who are bad people all through, through everything you do. And you really, it's going to be very hard. You're going to have a hard time consuming anything. And even more so, you don't have to be a good person to make art period, right? Like art from bad people is also relevant because it exists in the world. You don't get to pick and choose uh, the people in the world. You don't get to pick and choose the artists in the world. So Do you I have thinking, a,
3: sorry to interrupt. I just have a quick yeah. question. Do you have um like a line that like where you're like, but that I can't. Like with it me, I, probably, can, I can I can't. I
2: can <laughs> Probably be something. Uh, it would probably be something personal. And mm. I would also say that like, there's a difference between enjoying something and valuing it. Right. So like, I can't enjoy Michael Jackson's music anymore. Like I used to, but I still recognize what he put out, how valuable it is and, uh, what it influenced and that there are also appropriate uses of a lot of his songs. And I'm not just talking about, in, you know, in film or whatever They're man in the mirror does not lose its value because M- Michael Jackson is a piece of shit. Like, It's a piece of art about someone else, Um, about a character.
3: And to add to that, I might get canceled, but I can consume Michael Jackson's art and I cannot consume R. Kelly's songs because R. Kelly is singing about the shit, you know, like R. Kelly is singing about like, uh, I'm forgetting the lyrics about like, uh, you might be young. That's not R Kelly. It's fine, but he, <laughs> there's like he's talking about the shit he's doing, and so when I consume it, I'm like, "This is about a a 14 year old girl," versus Michael Jackson. Like to your point, man in the mirror. I'm not, you know, he not singing well, about the shit he's doing. The art is not, not reflecting him.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I oh, go ahead. I first. have a yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think that. I have a similar I have similar feelings to what you guys are talking about. And and for me, I mean, I guess Woody Allen is probably one of the, the biggest ones to point at, which is that he was incredibly influential on me as a as you know as a teenager and as a kid. Um, I still think some of his films are brilliant, but to your but to your point, Kemi, like I can't really watch Manhattan now and see that relationship with um Mariel Hemingway and say oh, that's okay. It's just not okay anymore. Um, so to your point, Kenny, and I think it's a very, very, very valid one, which is you can respect something. You can see the inherent talent in something and not enjoy it as much as you used to. And I think that's where I land on a couple things.
2: So that Woody Allen point kind of brings me to my second point, which is James Toback is at one, at the same time, it a astute critic of white people entering black spaces and a white person entering black spaces. So, and this is, it, it's the, the most interesting thing about this movie in, if when it comes to this particular argument or this particular, you know, notion is that James Toback played the recording studio owner. Yeah. He yeah. played yeah. a person who wanted the cool of black music yes. in his life but when he's sitting there with a white person is making it very clear all right i want the all, I want every all the spoils that come with what wu-tang brings we should talk about mm-hmm. the wu-tang element as well but all the spoils that come with what wu-tang brings but none of like what none of what inspired or gave birth to these stories in my studio right for someone to write that and play that character, obviously, I think he knew to some extent what he was doing with making the movie. Now, to your point, the point you're making, Kemi, about the white women in and around the black parties, there are spots that he obviously has a blind spot about, that he, does, he he thinks are part of the spoils when they're actually part of the problem. And that's the thing about the Woody Allen thing that, that made me you know, kind of connect these two things, which is... Woody Allen is very aware of a lot of his failings, right? That comes across in his movies all the time. That's not a failing he was aware of, that, you know, his chasing of like 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds yeah. or 16-year-olds, he, he never presented that as a personal problem. He just presented that as a healthy adult relationship. Just like James Toback here is not presenting like white women being used uh, in these black spaces as essentially living statues without actually interrogating it. That's just, that's just part of the music video aesthetic mm-hmm. uh, to him. So he's really like, I, I, I give, I actually do like, you know, again, separating the art from the artist, I give him great credit for talking about these things that no one even fucking acknowledged in 1999 like on this scale with this budget and also like, he also perpetuated a lot of bad things in this movie that maybe he should have known better about. So,
3: yeah. I And I think that's, that's how I felt because watching it, I'm like, Oh my God, this is what's going on today. And no one is talking about it. I, and I think, as I said in the beginning, the meta experience is like, but you're doing it, which is like <laughs> very weird. But I think, going back to why people get give themselves a pass or give themselves their own invite to the cookout, is I think he feels that, oh, because I'm commenting on it, I'm allowed to be in this space because I'm so aware of it. But to go to the Me Too thing, I think just like what you're talking about with Woody Allen, why have uh, Mike Tyson there talking about rape cases? You know, like that is weird. That is super weird. And I think that leans into the R. Kelly side for me about like, you're kind of justifying it. And um, it was just, it was just weird. It was just weird to have Mike Tyson.
2: I I kind of want to challenge you to answer your own question because, because, I am very interested in trying to figure out America's obsession with post-rape, post-prison Mike Tyson. And it could – there are two – I would say there are three major players in this who have normalized Tyson. Obviously, The Hangover is one. Yeah. uh, Which made him cute and cuddly. Jimmy Kimmel is another someone who I have like incredible respect for but Jimmy Kimmel used him as a as a mascot and made yeah. him uh cute and cuddly and James Toback who initially normalized him in this movie as almost like a Yoda like character yeah and then made a feature length documentary about Mike Tyson right. that humanized him and gave his side of the story and didn't present the other person's side of the story now I I think Mike Tyson is endlessly fascinating but I think people have just like with Kobe people have erased what they, what he did and commodified him in a way that I kind of can't figure out so I wonder what you think Emmy. I
3: think it's a fascination with athletes right I think um, black male athletes I mean it's like OJ this is all an extension of like OJ stuff Um, I think when you're making white America a lot of money, you're going to have the system uh, defending you. You know, I just think it's as simple as that. And I think, I don't know what the fascination is. And I think to bringing up the idea that he made this whole documentary, basically humanizing him, I think goes back to me saying it's weird given that he was doing the same shit, you know, and it feels like I'm going to present this side so that I myself can justify my actions. See, we're not, we're not bad people, but you're saying it through the lens of someone else. And it's like, I'm going to use this story. So you humanize with him, but I actually think it's him trying to humanize himself to himself. You know, um, I, I think Mike Tyson as a as a person is fascinating because like he's like really strong and like he's a boxer and then also when he talks he has a childlike element because one he has a lisp and I think that also talks to how we view people with speech impediments and I think it's like that dichotomy that has people like super fascinated didn't he have a show yeah. You know, he had a show. I don't a know if it's going to go on. on no, a TV show about his weed farm. I
2: had a friend working
3: on it. I wonder he, if it went through.
2: He might have because he had a he had a he had a animated show on on Adult Swim called Mike Tyson Mysteries. You know, there's a th- a third element to what you're talking about with Tyson that is just so seemingly incongruous. Is and I, Toback obviously like is enthralled by this. Big, strong man kicks the shit out of people, you know, from a really, really hard upbringing, an unusually difficult upbringing. Um, Childlike voice and some childlike tendencies, like very sweet with animals, for instance. Yeah. Um, Raises pigeons. Uh, What? Three. (laughs) As a child, he raised raised pigeons on his roof. Um, Sure. I mean, yeah. And... Three, I mean, when, when he when when he wasn't committing armed robberies, <laughs> yeah. which he also right, did, right, right. So, uh, and three. Drop. Look past all of that. Write down his words on a piece of paper. Eloquent, insightful, uh, existential. Like he doesn't fit into any of our stereotypical boxes about anything. So I do think you know. He is incredibly fascinating, and there are some tragic elements to it. But your point about Tobak making this and essentially saying, uh, let, "Let me let me give the rapist side of the story," because you know rapists yeah. are people too, is is really you know kind of insightful and makes a lot of sense to me.
3: Well,
2: I what? I think that the, yeah. Go
4: ahead, sorry, Cammy.
3: Uh, I was going to ask what happened with his case. I don't actually really know. Like, was he? Damn.
2: Convicted, See, I think I, he served three of a fi- three years of a five year sentence. Uh, maintained his innocence throughout. Um, however, like has has and has always maintained his innocence on that case, but has also admitted to a lot of other really terrible things, including you know assaulting Robin Gibbons when they were together and robbing people when he was younger. Like, wow. He, yeah, it, it's it's. It's confusing. And frankly, like, I think that, you know, I think if, if a more responsible filmmaker uh, had got their hooks into this, kind of like Ezra Edelman did with um, OJ, with 10-part yeah. the series, there's something there to be kind of dissected, but not Tobac.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
1: stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
4: I I mean the the Tobac thing hearing you guys talk about all of this really makes me think about sort of his you know this this idea that you guys have been talking about this idea of, of uh, white people just thinking that they can go to the cookout this confidence that comes with this the confidence it takes to make a movie like this and then the confidence to think that it's okay to do what he did in his actual life to to various women it all speaks to this sort of like toxic not just toxic masculinity but toxic power this idea that 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 to- that Toback has sort of convinced himself of to some degree or another. Um, which led to this film, which also feels like it's kind of about that. Like it's all this weird kind of yeah. hard to describe. It's it's very strange
3: because even the documentary filmmaker, Brooke Shields, right? Yep. See, I got, I, got the- I got one
5: name. I got one name.
3: I got one Look at me go. Um, but it's like the same thing. It's like, why is she documenting it? Why is she the one who's like interested in the story? And why is she the person who's going to control the narrative? And it didn't seem like she was doing much work. Even her questions were just like, uh, I don't know, that there was that, reflect- yeah. <laughs> that reflective. And it felt like actually, and this is the meta part of it, it felt like she was using that as a way to get into those spaces that she wanted to mm-hmm. be part of. Um,
4: Look at her hair. Talk- I was just gonna say, can we talk about her yeah. dreadlocks for a second?
3: Exactly. So she's like, it's the same. It's like a little bit like the same thing happening. It's like when you see someone holding a photo, holding a photo, holding a photo, holding a photo. Yeah,
4: that's
3: but what I, that I want
4: like I have a question for you guys because I, I found myself fascinated with Brooke Shields character in this movie. Um, It made me think about uh, Nicole Kidman in to die for when she's doing Mm. the documentary with uh, Mm -hmm. Joaquin Phoenix and Casey Affleck, this sort of now in to die for it's a dark comedy, right? Like it's a commentary on this woman who thinks that she understands kids and or, or wants to understand them and is doing a sort of pseudo gritty documentary in this, I can't tell if Brooke is in on the joke or not or if it's a joke. Now, again, that might be emblematic of the movie as a whole, but I just can't – like, I was watching it being like, is Brooke Shields great in this or is she <laughs> terrible in this? Like, I couldn't tell if it was like – if there was a consciousness to the performance or not. That's
3: not good. <laughs> anyway, this
2: This is one of the most layered movies we've done. And it and part of the it part of what's so interesting about it is you can't tell how many layers were intended and how many (laughs) layers we've built on it in the course of this conversation and the last 20 years of like you know, history and society. Um I want to take on that question if you don't mind Kevin. Go for it. Go. Uh I think that she did a great job. I also think she is a, like, ruthless caricature of, right. uh, as Kemi put it, the the, the woke white.
4: Yeah,
2: um, sure. And I think um, it's pretty cheesy to have a woke white do that to another woke white. So, like, I I think, like... That's fair. I think it's just, you know, it's... <laughs> Like, like in a weird way, like this movie had to exist, so someone did it, and then you could say you shouldn't do this. But like, like you could hold it up and be like, "All right, here's an example yeah. of what you sh- you shouldn't be yeah. doing." Like, yeah. I, I don't like, <laughs> like the hell? You, I have a
3: question: If you had watched that movie, because I've had this experience before, and I won't mention the movie, I went to a screening last year. Of a movie, uh, Kenny might know because I came back yeah. and was like, "This is the best movie I've ever watched." Okay, ever.
2: And uh-huh. I can't. Director- I, 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 I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. The
3: director's name. About, yeah. The director's name sounds black. Let's just say he has a name like
2: Kenny Neibart. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Let's, let's just say he has a name like Tyrone. Let's say it's, so, you know, they're introducing the movie. They're like, yeah, this new director, Tyrone, blah, blah, blah. So I'm watching it through the lens of a black director and a black writer. And so I'm like, this is fascinating. I noticed some of the, you know, slight stereotypes over there, but I'm like, that might be his experience. And so I let everything pass and I have the most beautiful cinematic experience I've had in the longest time of my life. I come (laughs) back to the room. I tell these people, y'all have to watch this movie. Y'all have to watch this movie. And then I find out the director and writer is white. And it's the first time in my life that I had a, a post experience of a movie because then I had to go through all those images again and be like, that's not okay. That's not okay. And I'm really conflicted. And so yeah. I wonder if I, we I were- I feel like I
2: saw you doing that in real time. Yeah, I I saw like, you like, like
4: ah.
3: <laughs> is- And imagine for that to be the best cinematic experience of your life, you know? And so- I wonder if we watched the same movie and it was done by a black person, because that's not what I've started to do. Would we feel the same way we
5: feel?
2: You know, I'm going to make you feel bad, Cammie. <laughs> <laughs> but for like six months, like I preferred to that story in my head. I'm like, all right, there is a way. There is a way. <laughs> I mean, like, I like it. Finally, like it broke, and I'm like, ah, oh, there's no yeah. way. But, like, so I, I, mean, I was like, wait, there is that one movie where the guy. You know what?
3: No, <laughs> you know what? I, have you watched Last Black Man in San Francisco?
2: Also yes. made by a white guy. Yeah, yeah.
3: Loved it, and I still love Very
2: it. Very good movie. Yeah, I
3: still mm-hmm. love good it. There is a way. There is a way. It's my, my here's my thing, and this will always be my thermometer. If your friends. Look like a line of coke. Don't do it. Mm. Don't do it, <laughs> because that 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 man's best friend is the main black guy, and I've you can tell people not that if you hang out with black people you understand black people, but I do think there was like you can see in the writing of it there was so much nuance, and then he saw those characters as people. Um,
2: K- Kemi, have you ever subtweeted on a podcast before? <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> I'm not to you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh,
2: well, I know that. I know that was. I know that not directed to <laughs> me. <laughs> yes.
3: Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think. I think it's all. But back to the question: If this was directed by a black person, written by a black person, how do you think we would consume this?
4: I just, I, I mean, I think we're talking about a very different film, right? I mean, yeah. we're talking about, we, you know, earlier but say, you guys but were talking but say about
2: this. Say it's not for the sake of the argument because I think okay. that's what, I think that's Kemi's point is the movie she's talking yeah. about, which I'll never name, yeah. uh, yes. didn't change, right? It didn't change from when she thought it was directed by a black person and directed by a white person. So if a black person made this movie frame for frame, shot for shot, uh, I would have read it completely differently. Me I mean, yeah, yeah, yep. for
4: sure, for sure.
2: And that, I, and that unfortunately or fortunately is, uh, uh well, I mean, is it unfortunate? It, it's, it's just the reality. And I can get to what my thought process behind unfortunately and fortunately in a second, but that is just the reality that in modern art, in modern media, modern culture and modern commercialism, artists are not anonymous. Yeah. And I uh-huh. kind of wanted to always be anonymous. Um, mm-hmm. I've written things under pseudonyms before. Like I just don't want me to be judged for what's on the page, but sure. I think that's not realistic. I think that's not, and I'm not really even sure if it's progressive anymore. I think it might be part of the problem. So I, I, that's kind of where I came from when I when I went. Unfortunately, fortunately, but yeah, if if it, if it were written directed by a black person, suddenly the James Toback character is pure satire. You yeah, know, yeah. He's, yeah. He's then the Brett Ratner becomes to, satire. Yeah, he's not a person trying to figure out where he fits in this world, right? And it, and, and the thing about him that's so interesting, he takes the Brooke Shields character. And he's very clearly saying, you don't fit in this world. He takes the five kids it, from the, the private school and says, you don't fit in this world. He takes um, – Ben takes, Stiller. Well, Ben Stiller definitely doesn't fit in this world, right? <laughs> oh, he, Ben. He takes, and he, says, you, he, he takes Claudia Schiffer and he says, you might fit in this world. There might be a place for you. He uh-huh. takes himself and says, You might fit in this world. There might be a place for you. Sure. Sure. And he takes Brett Ratner and says, You fit in this world. Yeah. You fit. In- this is yeah. what it looks like to fit in this world. And that's interesting and weird. And another step on the road you were talking about of him trying to figure out a way for James Toback. To maintain his toe backiness, yeah, while also maintaining his like you know, mor- not morality, like sense of self, like this is. I got two ratings for yeah. this, <laughs> Kemi. I don't know if you know this. is The end of the podcast, we do rating. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to to rate it twice. I'm tempted to give like mm. two different ratings because there are two different things going on in my head. I, yeah, I,
5: I yeah, also want. I
3: I also want to talk about something that I was completely confused on and tried to have a take on, but just failed. What the fuck was going on with the husband?
4: No, I wanted to talk about that too, Kemi. Because I want to talk about the movies that Robert Downey Jr. is in, and the movie that Ben Stiller is in. Because (laughs) they're not in this movie.
2: No. (laughs) I I don't have a take on it either. Actually.
3: What is that character? like? Was it supposed to be comedic relief?
4: What? Uh, well, apparently, from what I read, uh that Robert Downey Jr. wanted to play a different role in the movie. I'm not sure which one. And then they came up with to, this you character. You wanted to play Raekwon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If we're um, going to get yeah. Raekwon. Like <laughs> but, but long story short, it seemed as though... Robert Downey Jr. and Toback came up with this character and then he had no lines. So everything that Robert Downey Jr. Does on his own sort of improvised, I can only assume under the influence performance that is what it is. It doesn't fit in the movie. It feels like the whole thing is a buildup to Toback forcing him to hit on Mike Tyson and just see what happens. That feels like that's the whole kind of thing. And I'll say this that scene is a moment like you're watching it and you're just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm watching. And I know that that Tyson's not in on it to a certain degree because there's an imbalance in that conversation that's got a tension that I can't really explain. But it, but I don't understand what it has to do with anything in this movie. Like you could, you could pull Robert Downey Jr. out of this movie and lose, for all intents and purposes, nothing. Because
3: even the scene on the boat, when he's hitting on, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it yeah. was just also, I mean, did I chuckle? I surely did. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I, yeah. I like that. It, the reason that scene made me chuckle was like how he was pointing out like really toxic masculinity of like, sure. how do I walk? How do I walk? What, you know,
5: yeah, but it was
3: funny. I didn't, I just didn't understand what that was about and how, why was she so shocked?
5: And then well,
4: can I just, I I, I want to kind of piggyback on that, Kemi, because it, it it, leads into something that I, I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is um, directors that use quote unquote improvisation, because there are some filmmakers that, don't write a script at all, right? You're, you're Wong Kar-wise, you're, you're Mike Lee's to a certain degree, where to them, the, the beauty is in the finding it, right? And creating a, a, that crackle and that intangibility of human interaction. Um, and they're able to build a sandbox and create an environment that allows for that to feel really beautiful and poetic on screen. That's not what James Toback is doing here. And when improvisation doesn't feel that way, it has an awkwardness and it has a, a lack of, of, it doesn't feel genuine. It feels intensely, you know, not genuine.
5: Yeah. And
4: this movie, it thinks that it's creating that energy and it's not. So what happens is it all just sort of feels like scenes that you're not really sure why you're watching them.
2: Kevin, as, as an actor and director, you can speak to it like in and a writer. A, right? You I mean, mean a
3: you mean a director actor?
2: I mean a director, writer, producer, friend, <laughs> I mean, actor, actor. Yeah. actor. Come on! <laughs> well, I, I, I am mean, interested in I'm interested in the answer to this question from all facets. Yes. of yeah. uh, as I mean, okay. The industry you
3: so here here as a director, I love improv, and I think sure. that. There is just something you get from the actors. One, they're just more in tune with each other because there's something that actors, we do. You know, you read the script, you plan how you're going to say it, whether you like it or not. You know, you've been rehearsing it with someone else. You kind of like have figured out where things fit in. But I think when you improv, like you're clued in because you have no choice. You don't know what the fuck the other person's going to say. As a writer, I think sometimes when I see scenes <laughs> like that, um, it's almost a mockery of writing and the skill that it takes and the craft that it takes because there is what basically what you're describing is there's no turn in any of these scenes. It's just like yeah. improv. Uh, what I do, yes, um, is I always do like a couple of takes with the script. And then um, I'll do a take where I'm like, you have to say this line, the beginning, and then the middle line, which is usually where the turn is, and then the end. So at least it gives them a little bit of a roadmap. So even within the improv, they're going to have some sort of turn. But I will say nine times out of 10, you take the improv take. Just act as...
4: Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're speaking of, like, rails, right? Like, yeah. you're, you're giving yeah. structure to a scene so that yeah. it has a fucking point. Yeah, right? yeah. So, like, I mean, we, we, one of the filmmakers that I think is an interesting way to look at this is Judd Apatow, right? Where Judd yeah. Apatow kind of... Now, comedy is different to a certain degree, but he kind of goes into a scene, he knows what he wants to get out of it, and then he just kind of rolls camera for hours on end and finds a bunch of funny stuff to fill it in, and it can make it... From a pacing perspective, can make his films feel lumpy, but it's worth it because he hopes that you're laughing at some of the jokes along the way. Yeah, this to your point with these scenes not having a turn. Like, look at that specifically that Robert Downey Jr. scene where it's like it's it's got a thesis, it's got yeah. like an idea behind like he what he wants them to talk about, but it never boils to a point which is kind of this movie. Right? Yeah. Which is that it has a thesis, it has ideas of which it wants to speak to, and yet it never kind of makes a point.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that.
2: Well, I think that there's something to
3: one more scene. One more scene. Sorry. That (laughs) That I thought was that I thought was so dope in the classroom (laughs) where they're like talking about everyone. And the kids are like Ba-da-da-da-da. and it was like whoa 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 and then the one chick who from the ghetto <laughs> and is talking about like no we're trying to get out and ev- and then like seeing her roll her eyes and everyone yeah, her eyes
2: at the end yeah
3: yeah i thought to yeah. be honest
4: it's
2: a great thing
3: the best scene of the movie
2: Well, because that's, I mean, that's the
4: movie, right? Like in one scene, it encapsulates the entire thing. You also have Jared Leto for no reason, which also feels like it kind of encapsulates this movie. (laughs) And it it just like, it really does feel like, okay, you nailed it. Like you nailed what you wanted to do there. And then he jams in all this other shit to kind of fill out a feature. Honestly, like the Ben Stiller stuff, which is, the most plot the movie has, which it feels so shoehorned in there with this murder and this cop and, yeah. and this, and Joey pants playing this DA. And you're just like, what is, and, and Ben Stiller, who honestly, like if there was a sniper rifle off camera, I wouldn't be surprised. Like he feels so forced to be in this movie. It's like, what is he Maybe doing? Maybe he is.
2: I, first on Robert Downey Jr. Um, obviously James Toback is not se- secure enough to talk about sexuality like yes. clearly right like it was more or less a punchline like it certainly was a punchline at the end uh Jared Leto is in the movie to be a fu- to be to be a landing point for Robert Downey Jr's character he shows up at this club where his yeah. fucking students are why is he there why? so so that is the, is that one thing I actually thought Ben Stiller was pretty good, um, particularly in the scene with Joey Pants in the um, in the in the bar, the, yeah. the bar the where he goes can. on and on and on about the story that wound up actually having a point and wound up kind of hitting me in the fields. So, like, I th- well, can I just to, just want to be clear? I don't think Ben
4: Stiller's bad in the movie. Still, like, I don't think did. that his performance is bad. I just don't know what he's doing in the movie.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 the whole thing makes no sense. I totally outfit, agree with that. The and outfit. The outfit. The glasses. The, he looks the glasses.
5: <laughs>
3: uh, My favorite shot is where the camera's like rising and he's like,
2: <laughs> he, he's, he's doing a parody of something that like he's it's not, just not this world right like yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he's like I was a gambler and the fact that, gambler, that he yes. dated like, Claudia
4: Schiffer is also amazing I know Sorry. them walking
2: together was a, amazing but like I was a gambler I was a criminal then they decided to make me a cop and she hated me for it <laughs> Um but the 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 thing that I really like on out a of, out of structural level like you know yeah. if this movie was was good and I'm not saying it's not good but I mean but if it was just like you know, binary good. I would st- or at moral good. I would just have a big problem with this movie being almost a ta- a tapestry for the first hour of people living in New York, and then a very kind of specific, focused, simple story about you know revenge or about you know sh- about about snitching and revenge and the police and all that. You know, kind of typical. Uh crime stuff, I also will say, like that movie that existed for the last half hour isn't such a bad movie either, and there was tension in those scenes that yep, like yep. I was actually engaged with, so like at if it makes you feel something, maybe it's good, but like i can I can see how the way it was manipulated and all that stuff, and ultimately, yeah. you know the insidiousness of white guy will com- committing the crime for black guy rich you know, to be more quote unquote black uh, and then getting off because he's you know well-born is kind of,
4: I I mean, I think that for me, it's, I I agree with everything you're saying, Kenny. I I don't actually necessarily think that the scenes that Ben is in are bad, nor do I think that that storyline is necessarily bad um, or executed poorly. Um, It just, it kind of comes back to what I was saying up top, which is it just, it just feels like a kitchen sink. He's just not focused on anything. The movie is so unfocused that you find yourself kind of locking into scenes and moments that we've, as we've been talking about, but as a whole, you're just like, but what does it all mean? And, 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 you know, what was I really supposed to take away from this? And I don't feel necessarily any connection to any of the characters emotionally, right? Like they all feel like ciphers. For an idea as opposed to a character. So there's no one in this movie that I felt genuinely any sort of emotional resonance with.
3: I felt that way about
4: the girl, the student. But, sure. We, okay. Yeah, she, she was great. <laughs> no, and we, and then we yeah.
3: never. I'm yeah, kidding. No, I'm kidding. But to your but, point, but I, think, to the point like, I think that scene did everything. And then everything was like, let's beat it over. Like, he never <laughs> ever like went further yeah. than that. Even that scene where where um, I don't know anyone's name uh, where she's like talking about her thesis and um, she's like, why aren't you listening to me? I thought brilliant because that is something white people do. Like, look at the work I'm doing in racism. And it's just like, this guy's actually dealing with something about (laughs) he's like, I'm living this life. I don't need to listen to it. And so I, I, I feel like Kenny in many ways, because there are, to me, things that are brilliant. And even the, the ending about this kid that is, is trying to be black and then does this quote unquote black thing because he associates black with crime, but then never ever having to suffer or, or pay the consequences of crime, to me yes. is the exact thing. It's like, yes, you do get to put on a costume. Yes, you'll never be black because you never have to uh, deal with the consequences of being black in America.
2: And, and to to and to <clears throat> further that that thesis that you just you know th- that you just laid out is not bad if it didn't end in such a way where it felt like yeah. the happy ending are the people separating going to their own corners dad and sons reuniting everybody's happy again like that's what but isn't that america oh i'm not saying i'm not saying it's not but i yeah i am saying that i think the movie comes down on the idea of ultimately like White people should lead. White people should do their white guy shit. Black people yeah. should do their black guy yeah. shit. Yeah. And the white yeah. guy should is you know the white guy should is solving crimes and putting criminals yeah. away. The black guy shit is doing crimes and being in jail. So like I, I I think that like you know at the end I just go whoa is this like an argument for segregation? Because like I
1: I well,
2: I, I kind of you know I, I don't think he meant that because I think he got I truly think he got lost in the I'm gonna write a. I'm, I'm going to write a, a a story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I'm going to have a plot here to, you know, use a boss's difference between story and plot. He's like, I'm going to get plotty here, but um, and I think he got a little lost in it because I can't imagine at the end of the day he decided. I can't imagine at the end of the day James Toback was like, you know what, white people white white people say below ninety sixth Street, black people say above ninety sixth Street, we'll be fine. Yeah. Um I mean I you know isn't the closing I, I shot Brooke like...
3: Shields just the clo- actually when you say it the opening shot and the closing shot kind of about like first is like the
4: last shot of the film is not the Brooke Shields Elijah Wood tongue kiss but it's fucking close like it's oh, okay. basically like because yeah. the movie ends with like credits and then like a mosaic of world, shot yeah. around the world kind and of thing to try to kiss. kind of tie everybody together um but it, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, this is a perfect example. What are we supposed to take away from the fact that at the end of this movie, Brooke Shields ends up with Elijah Wood, who, by the way, has two lines in this movie, maybe three yeah. lines in this movie. Like, I do, I don't know what, other than the fact that he's like, this is shocking, or this is kind of you didn't see this coming, or <laughs> I don't know what. Like, I just, I just, you didn't see this is coming. kind of, you know, like yeah. it's it's very strange yeah it's i I was thinking about the um the scenes between Dean and Claudia Schiffer when he's sort of grappling with taking the money from Ben Stiller and all that sort of stuff. i, I must mention
2: Has as a been. lifelong Knicks fan that Dean is played by Alan Houston who at the time was the best player on the Knicks. so oh, okay, and he did a fine job and he wasn't he did a cool. fine job. He wasn't particularly beloved either. You know this. That was the '99 Knicks, where it was Latrell Sprewell's team, and Allen Houston. Like, just wasn't. Allen Houston was a great player, but Allen Houston was not a beloved Nick the way Latrell Sprewell was. So, and the Nick, the Nick fans are wonderful, and they have a tendency to you know gravitate towards the the more exciting. I actually Knicks. thought he was was quite good in it. He did his acting.
4: Like he did great. specifically the scene he has with will when he's about to get shot at the end he does yeah. a real that that scene is surprisingly effective, considering it just, that it shouldn't be
2: <laughs> it's interesting that James Toback used an actual athlete for that role, you yeah. know someone he I having worked for a show where we use actual athletes for shit, like I know the Jane Tobacks of the world who just want a fucking picture of themselves next to the best player in New York to hang on their, you know, office wall or their, you know, fucking you know, post on the ninety nine version of Instagram. So there's a lot to that. So version. You, you certainly didn't need it. I mean like or is chestnut tall enough? You know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. just, you really didn't <laughs> need to, like... Especially because there were no... Hand.
3: There were, like, no
2: shots of them playing basketball.
3: I'd understand that, you know? Yeah. But it's like, you yeah. could have no. just used a tall-ass actor. <laughs>
4: yeah. But he was good in the scene he's when he's trying to talk... The, talk. Will not, you know, talk him out of killing him. And actually, I would, I would argue that that is the most visually well-shot oh, sequence him. in that yeah. movie. The, the the colors the jerky, are beautiful. They did a great saturation. Yeah. The spiral staircase. That overhead shot. Even yeah. if I don't completely understand where he shot him, how he shot him, and why and he's how he as fell much he was, on top, and how know, he fell. that doesn't that, make any sense.
2: That, that, that's that's physics, Kemi. Like I mean, when <laughs> you come on, they fall always <laughs> they, they always fall against lost. the momentum of the bullet. That, that <laughs> that's, that's See, massive, and
3: because you know that, you are now invited to the cook-up. <laughs> All you gotta do is shoot someone All right. I
2: got it. I got I got this on a podcast I'm gonna go in. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hold up the audio Oh
5: yeah? Oh yeah?
4: <laughs> so here's the I have a question for you guys Apparently this is Michael B. Jordan's first movie Did you catch him in this movie? Where was he?
2: Maybe he was I didn't one of the third three kids, because he was he was a little baby in 99.
3: Maybe he was one of Maybe. the kids. He probably it's was. first movie. No, I, don't know what to say. I do have a meeting soon.
2: <laughs> Wait, you I'm have a meeting no. with him?
3: No, just in general. Like, like he thought- needs
4: to get off of this <laughs> podcast, Kenny, which is an amazing
3: thing <laughs> to
2: say. Is it at 12, Kenny?
3: No, it was at 1130. I thought this was an hour and a half. <laughs> How long does this go? How long
2: we,
4: is it two know, hours? Listen, this goes it's as long a, as you want, but this is my favorite having. thing that's ever <laughs> happened on the podcast. We've never had a guest that just
2: legit be like, I gotta go.
4: Listen.
3: I no, but this. I can push it. What time do you normally end
5: it?
2: Well, we, we tend to go we tend to go about two hours, but you know, we, we get to this zone where we're just kind of having fun. Okay, um, you
3: know what? Let me tell them.
2: Tell Sorry. Michael <laughs> Tell Michael B. <laughs> no don't apologize. This
4: is Sorry, fantastic. Michael. This is great no, behind the curtain. To Michael B
3: Jordan. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um I mean, either way, I I mean, the re- we've talked about the plot of this movie, so we don't yeah, really we can, need to talk. About I the mean, plot, we can
2: wrap ahead. this up. I don't is it will on this podcast or Ernie? like we can just cut I'm this gonna stuff. I'm going to take a photo
3: can... so he knows I'm serious. It's fine.
2: No, no. well I mean, listen. I think we were we
4: were Done. nearing the 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 wrap up in terms of, of you got to keep yeah, that in but,
3: as well. Me being like,
2: yeah, no, go. no, we're doubling it. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy. We have a director on this podcast. Okay,
3: listen. I'm busy directing, <laughs> writing, producing, and acting.
4: So I do want to say this, though, because it's funny that the last shot of the film, Kemi, that you that you alluded to earlier. Yeah, is not the second last shot is Brooke Shields and, and, and Elijah Wood uh, making out. The last shot is Brett Ratner directing the hip hop music video. So yes. that's where the movie really kind of wants to say, this is the enduring thing that I want to stick with you. This is the thing I want you to leave the theater thinking about, which is Brett Ratner bopping his head to one
3: I wanna I don't know this fact at all, but I'm just going to guess. That yeah. I bet a lot of those like music videos in in the nineties were directed by white men.
2: Well that is I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Without
5: yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I mean Ratner did a lot, uh a guy named Dave Myers did a lot, like um a lot of Asian guys actually, Justin Lin did a lot. Uh, oh, nice. Um who's the who's the other director from Fast and the Furious? Um oh no, he he's oh. the, he's the guy from Saw, James Wan. But um yeah, there, there were definitely a lot in the nineties, and then you know, of course, there were, you know, your hype Williams, um, who, you know, yeah, yeah. the one people remember because he had a visual style. But uh to this uh just to kind of continue on this theme of the, the rap yeah. music, I really do want to also talk about Wu Tang because um Wu Tang is not your average rap group. You Wu Tang is not your average entity not just from the way they make music which is different you know they're a collective and basically uh rizza put together a very large group of people not just like the nine or i think eight original members and then the other members that came on we're talking about like 20 30 40 people who who can claim wu-tang without being a liar um in that period of time the other thing about Right, and then the one other thing about Wu Tang is Wu Tang is so quintessentially New York, right? In a way that even Biggie isn't. Like Wu Tang is in the fabric of New York, right? And most of these guys never left. They mostly still live in Staten Island, and some of them have gone on to be massive stars, like Method Man or Ghostface, or those people. I mean Raekwon, Riz is obviously like has as many hyphens as can be. So like they're. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Riz, is a, Riz is a thing all to himself now. Riz is a director, Riz is a music supervisor, yeah. Riz is an actor, Riz is, you know, in movies big and small. But the thing that Wu-Tang in 99 denoted more than, I think, any other rapper, any other rap group, was credibility. And... Toback signing on with Wu Tang, and they were very instrumental in the writing of this movie. Uh, Oliver Grant was an associate of Wu Tang. Oliver Grant started Wu Wear. Oliver Grant was, you know, a self-made millionaire on his own through the Wu Wear label. Like then that guy, that's guy, played Power or Rich Power. Power signing on with Wu Tang was some serious cover in and of itself, and probably deflected a ton of criticism at the time. Because if Wu Tang is okay with this, you should be too. Sure, you know what I mean. And then Ray yeah. Khan was obviously the main rapper in this. He was called Cigar in the movie. Um, okay, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there were Wu Tang <laughs> members up and down. Method Man had a had had a speech, a very modern speech about how oppressed, how oppression still, you know, lived then lives now. But uh, you can't kind of talk about this without talking about Wu Tang. Sorry.
3: And now I'm really gonna get fired, but. I mean, can I get fired from a job I'm not on? But I think this is the same way. Let's take this to the writer's room, okay? You have black writers in your writer's room to do the exact same function as Wu-Tang. And it's like, well, we have black writers in the room. But it's like, am I writing the story? Do I actually have the power? Does Wu-Tang have the power in that movie? And like, let's be honest, am I in a position to say no to a check? No, I am not, you know. And so I always hated, especially like, I, okay, I don't mind saying this. Okay, Tyler Perry. <laughs> there were there was some like um, criticism about some uh, Tyler Perry show called Sisters, right? And then they were interviewing the actresses. Like, there are some criticisms. What do you think? I think that's so unfair to do because- Gonna kind of say I'm not gonna critique the the hand that signs my check, you know, and yet I feel like people are used in those situations to be like, see, they're okay with it. No, what they're okay with is getting a check,
2: <laughs> you know. No, no question about that. Right, right, right. Like I mean, we need to air out our own, you know, kind of laundry. But come and I work on a show where there are, there are four writers of color, two black writers, and I and uh, I you can read between the lines we we we've seen this we've seen this up close um and it's uh it's your point is obviously correct and well taken but i think people have known that for a while you know the whole like the whole black friend thing and i think that you know that's been like going around for a good 15 years the notion of diversity hires and the notion of getting paid less and the notion of getting paid by the studio the notion of just being there so you can say This is my black person. This black person's okay with this. You know, this blackface sketch on 30 Rock. So we're fine. Um, Something I don't think people don't know about are black passes. And that's what Wu-Tang did. Wu-Tang gave this movie a black pass. And by that, mean, I mean that in a writer way, right? Like we're going to black this script up. Yeah. And that's something that I think happens all over the fucking industry for much less money than a polish or much less money than a, you know, a rewrite or, you know, a spec. And uh, is something that people should really think long and hard about what they're doing Mm -hmm. in asking someone to come in for $5,000 to give a quote-unquote black pass to a black script instead of having that same person write the first draft.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what they're saying is, I know how to tell your story better. I just need you to write the word nigger in it. That's all they're saying. Because then they can't be, no one can say like, oh, they used the N word. No, 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 no. That came in the Black Pass. You know? And I think, I also think that Black Passes serve as a safety net, right? Because any issue you have a problem with, which is why I'm always cautious about them and I've never done them, um, is any issue that arises in that film, people are going to say it was a it was a person who did the black pass, right? And also, you don't have as much power in a black pass. All you can do is change dialogue. You you're pretty much a punch. Up. You're just punching up, right? Yeah. You can't change the storyline. It's not like you're going to give yourself more agency. And so I think, I think that's a, a very good thing to bring up because I think, but again, it's a check. I, and I'm not saying that people should be doing things for money or, or um, that it's okay to, to do things that harm, that have like negative narratives for money. But I understand what, it, what it's like to need a check. And someone is like, here's this thing, you can write it. And of course, they sell it to you differently, right? They're like, we want to show how white people are, da, 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 And you can see it like that. But until you see the film, you're like, I don't know. I mean, I still don't know if the film is problematic. I mean, it is,
2: but I I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, how, I don't know. You're there, you're, <laughs> there for, you're there for step five of, of a 20-step process. Yeah. So... You know, you don't know any, you, 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 you couldn't possibly know anything. And that's the other thing that, you know, you're, you're, you're saying, which is essentially, yeah. Okay. So 25 ish years ago, studio started the diversity programs and as a way to get writers of color or other marginalized writers. So people with handicaps or whatever into writers rooms. And I understand, of course, there were noble intentions, noble ish, um, but what I think this moment is about is understanding that if you actually have those intentions, the prescriptions we've been prescribing have not been working and have not yeah. been adequate and have not been correct. And to put it upon a black writer to, to, to turn down a, play, a paycheck instead of putting on a white producer or a white studio head or a white network head. To say no, 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 this show should be written by a black person is yeah. those are the people a with the power and b with nothing to lose. Yeah, like, like you have nothing to lose. Like that's the thing. So I, I, I really and just to just to go one step further, like I recognize how hard it is to be a showrunner. And I recognize you can't just become a showrunner tomorrow. So you can't take a playwright from New York or from Atlanta and say you are now a showrunner because it's just not like that. But you can take a playwright from New York or Atlanta or a short filmmaker or anybody, a comedian, and say you are now a show creator and we will pair you up with a showrunner. Yes, Because that happens every fucking day. And it's happening a lot more than it used to happen. Um yeah. Michaela Cole's a good example, right? But uh but she show run
3: her stuff from Gecko. Michaela Cole writes, directs, acts in every single episode you ever
2: seen Yes. M- Michaela that's what I'm saying. Michaela Cole is someone who can come on the scene at the top level with yeah. a producer who will make yeah. her HBO show with her, not yeah. for her yes. and not taking it from her. Right? Yeah. And that's the thing we can be doing. It, I I feel like we, we have focused way too much on the staffing aspect of it and not nearly enough on the creating aspect of it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like the stat, even the high level staffing, like it matters. It does. It matters. Because
3: here's the main issue with those diversity hires is that like the studios are paying for it. So they're like, all right, well, an extra, an extra body, mm-hmm. sure. Bring right. it. Yeah. But no one's promoting. Right. And then I've been told in a room, I don't know if you were there, Kemi, but literally one of the higher levels was like, we love our diversity hires. Like we love Kemi. I'm not a diversity hire. I'm not a diversity hire. Like I'm literally not. I'm
2: I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but I'm sorry. It's funny. On
3: on, on two points, I'm not a diversity hire. I didn't go through a diversity program. So he's like, We're like we, I don't know why they wouldn't promote them. Like, we love our diversity hires. We love Kami. And then he mentioned a, a writer from last season. And I'm like, well, one, I'm not a diversity hire. And two, how rich of you to call me the diversity on a Black show? You're the diversity. <laughs>
2: what the fuck? How about, so, about mentioning someone... Well, I mean, God. Now, thank God we're two hours and no one to listen to this. But uh, how about mentioning someone from last last year who is no longer there? Yeah, sure. yeah. But – and on top of that, like, Lionsgate doesn't do that.
5: So it's yeah. – it's, it's,
2: it's not – but the fact that he
3: would – he saw a black writer and saw me as a diversity hire is just talking to what you're talking about. It's like, oh, the little color in the room, right? And I think – you know, one thing that I have learned, like, from the two rooms, I used to think that being in a room, like, you had a lot of power. And you have suggestion power. But ultimately, you're writing in the voice. of I know this sounds so obvious, but it just clicked. <laughs> like, you're actually writing in the voice of the showrunner. So you, whoever that showrunner is, you're writing in their voice. Because ultimately, it's like, yes, no, I like that, you know. And so... It goes to your point, Kenny. Of there's so much focus on staffing, but no one is looking at the top level. And to what you were saying about, yeah, you can you can bring a playwright from New York and make them children. It just doesn't work. What you can do is promote people. <laughs> you know, well, it's,
4: it's. I mean, it really comes down to if you want to change things you have to put people in the position of power to actually change things it's the yeah. people that can greenlight a project it's the people that that are in control of the creative voice of a show yeah you know and and that's where you know that's where we're lacking that's where the industry needs to make serious changes and and that's where you know the tide has to turn
2: yeah yeah
4: um, so Kenny do you want to rate this movie
2: I'm gonna rate it uh never seen this movie movie before. Kemi, I know you haven't either, but okay. normally we yeah. do if you've seen it before in ninety. Well, do you want to
4: explain to, to Kemi how the rating works? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So
2: you normally do it uh Sorry. if you've seen it before, you'll give a rating. Then you'll give a rating before yeah. this podcast and after this podcast. Mm. Um And I'm all right, so this is a perplexing movie to rate. And I it was perplexed after I watched <laughs> it. I said, How do you how do you rank a movie that dares to tap tackle a topic too taboo for almost anyone to acknowledge seriously but the conclusions it draws are ultimately pretty dangerous which is how i feel i gave it a i i gave it a 40 before this podcast so it's one out of 99 kemi oh oh, i love that thank you most people are like not 100 (laughs) Um, (laughs) stupid (laughs) <laughs> well we have we normally have really stupid guests on so. <laughs> we, we do, we they, they carry,
3: they're clearly not multi-hyphenates
2: that's why no <laughs> so, uh, i'm 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 actually gonna bump it up i'm gonna bump okay. it up to a 48 mm-hmm. and it's yep. a, a 50 is generally the demarcation line between recommend and don't recommend uh i can't recommend it as a movie that you should be watching but i can recommend it as a very interesting cultural document yep. and also an interesting albeit potentially unintentional self-dissection of james tobeck mm. so there's a lot there that we were able to sink our teeth into but i don't walk away from this movie being like that's a great movie that I think people that, that I want my recommendation on. So yeah. I get Roger Ebert's two star review. I will say that I
4: started lower than you, but I landed basically at the same place. I started at a 30 mm. and now I'm at a 49. I similarly to you, Kenny, I I can't in good conscience recommend this to people because I don't think that it's a particularly effective piece of filmmaking. Um, from 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 you know thirty thousand feet. Um, I think there's stuff in it that, as we've talked about, has bumped this up almost twenty points for me in terms of just there's there's an intellectualism and there is there are goals that this film is striving for that I commend and and I'm gl- and and I guess on some level I'm glad it exists. Um, but I can't say that it works as a movie for me. Um, but I. I I respect the attempt and and I respect the sort of the unintentional metatextuality that that Toback brought to this um and I and yeah I mean this is this has been a not just a a, a phenomenal episode and a, and a great conversation but it it really has sort of made me reevaluate Toback and perhaps what his goals were as a filmmaker to a certain degree um so I I appreciate that but what did you think Kemi?
3: I'm going to give it two ratings. My first rating is if it was a black director.
5: (laughs) Okay. Great. Great.
3: If it was a black director, I would rate it 55. Okay. Um, And only because I, you know, to be honest, even as is, I do think there are conversations in that film that people aren't having, you know? And I think it's, um, if you watch it with the idea that it's problematic, I think you need to, I would recommend watching it, but knowing it's problematic. Because I think it's a great conversation start. I mean, like, look at this podcast. Like, I think it brings up a lot of interesting things that are so relevant right now, specifically today. And that's sad. And I think that's where the brilliance is. Um, And also, I just like watching Wild Shit. Like, wow, the audacity. (laughs) Uh, Um... Yeah, I'ma put it at a I'ma put it at a fifty one because I think I, you should watch it, but no it's problematic. You know.
2: I I you know as you were talking, yeah. I I'm giving too. it a fifty-two. I like yeah. I, I just yeah. it, it just like, tipped. Yeah. It was like it's the same exact cause like forty-eight was was intentional and fifty two, yeah. it's that you 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 flipped it for me. Yeah so, Like I'm
3: glad I watched yeah. it, you know. I didn't I didn't feel like give me my me hour and forty minutes back. I was like, "This is fascinating." Um, problematic. Yeah, you've convinced me
4: as well. I've, yeah. I've I've tipped over over the fifty the fifty yard line on this one too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I truly I think that.
2: Are you, what, I what are you think going? Phil? If you look, what's your what's your number? Is it fifty-one? It's fifty. Fifty. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know
3: what? There we go. Fifty. Fifty-one.
2: Fifty-two. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I and I,
4: I say that in the sense that because I think you you said it best like it might be the most like this is a document movie that we've done so far Kenny like mm-hmm. that it's almost out of the realm of whatever it is and it's now this thing that you need to kind of watch not even just as a conversation starter which it clearly is but also just in terms of like a document of 99 of of what that was and what what race perhaps meant then and also to look at it through that lens now, it, it does become a lot more fascinating if you go into it knowing that it is a problematic movie
2: for sure. Yeah, shit, Kemi, nice job. You were great. I think you
4: great. I had, <laughs> this I had was no fun. doubt. But this yeah. Was fun. Uh, so next week we're doing Mystery Alaska um, with uh, Bart Nickerson is coming on. Have you seen the movie Mystery Alaska, Kemi, by any chance?
3: I have not. Yeah
4: the the very white hockey movie that david e kelly wrote, <laughs> Jay wrote white,
2: is, white is a lot of coke
4: <laughs> yeah
3: there you go uh, um david e kelly of uh big little Lies.
4: Yeah. yeah i love that that's the associate yes I also, love like eight
2: million television shows from the nineties. Kemi, Kemi, Kemi is love- seventeen years old, so you know.
3: Listen, yes. I, I was introduced <laughs> to him on that, and I loved it. I loved it a lot. All
4: right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we're doing next week. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Kemi. We really, really
2: appreciate it. Thank you, Kemi.